0: Good, good, good! Great to be here with you all this morning. Happy Mother's Day, especially my baby mama, looking fly over there. I see you. Uh, hey, today I am pumped. Uh, sometimes God and His grace just seems to uh, orchestrate the right text at the right time. Mother's Day is a great time to be going over what we're going to go over this morning. So I'm excited to kind of dive in with you guys. We're starting our new summer series in the Book of Ephesians. Alright, I'm excited. Uh, man, Ephesians is just powerful. And so uh, I'm really, really, really pumped about this text in particular. There's so much here. Uh, so telling the first gathering, I feel like I could like feel it in my body. Like, you know, like when you drink a Red Bull and you kind of like feel it, you know, that's what it felt like. I drank like a Red Bull and then chased it with a Surge, you know, y'all remember Surge? It was like eight ounces of uh, sugar, four ounces of carbonated water, and then green eggs and ham dye, right? So that's what I feel like. I'm like excited. I'm like ready to go with it. And so uh, let's go ahead and jump in. We'll be in Ephesians the whole morning. So feel free to turn there. You can take this link, put it right into your browser as well. You can follow along that way. Uh, and uh, man, mean, we want you to see the scriptures. And so on the version app, you can open that up and uh, type in the Well Austin there as well. Also the ushers are gonna be coming forward. And uh, if you need a Bible, if you would just slip up your hand, they'll give you one right now. Uh, If you do not own a Bible, we want you to take and to keep that. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word of God, be able to to use it. And so sometimes just having that physical copy is helpful for people like me who are kind of learners in that way. So if you want that, feel free to take that. Um, One of the things I would encourage you in is today, there is so much truth in this text. In fact, we're probably going to cover like 4% of what's actually in the midst of this because sometimes you just land upon this wildly rich text with all these implications for us and so my encouragement to you to be today would be to look at the scriptures because God may be wanting to speak to you in a way that I will not highlight or draw out, but rather he will speak to you in a different way through the Word of God. so we want your eyes on the word that God may be able to speak to us. all right so Ephesians is where we will be. today is the start, so it looks like it's good to start in Ephesians chapter one verse one. you ready? It says this Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To so the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God uh, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give you a little bit of background to this letter and kind of why we're doing this book as a whole, as a body. Uh, Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul, which we see right here, and it was actually written a few years after he planted uh, the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was this powerhouse church in a lot of ways. So if you're familiar with biblical characters, Paul was the church planter there. Uh, You had Timothy, who was the pastor at Ephesus. You had Aquila and Priscilla, who were uh, members there. You had the Apostle John, who was an elder there. So, like, if you go to their website and type in leadership, like, they just have a powerhouse leadership, right? And be like, yeah, Matt Chandler planted us, Tim Keller's our pastor, you know, Priscilla Shire's there, so is Jen Wilkin, Francis Chan's there too, but he only leads the CG, we don't have enough money to pay him, right? Like, that's how Ephesus was, okay? There was all these people that were there, and it was just really, really powerful. And so, uh, because of this, I think uh, Ephesians then and becomes a great model for us of what it means to have an identity as a church because obviously they were doing a lot of really powerful things for the kingdom but also it's a good for us to think about our identity as individuals and one of my hopes with this series is that we would get to define both our identity as a body what God is calling us into as a family and our identity as individuals what is our personal identity secondly the city of Ephesus was wildly wildly a lot like Austin in a lot of ways Ephesus was as a technology hub. They were coming out with all of these new uh, creations and inventions that were really uh, being used throughout all of the Roman Empire. And so we see all this technology that was bringing in a lot of young people into the city of Ephesus. Because a lot of young people were coming into the city of Ephesus, it was a very pluralistic city, had all these different kind of religious thoughts and religious views and, and ideas as to what truth was, similar to Austin as well. It was the capital of Asia Minor, and obviously Austin is the capital of Texas, and some people think Texas is its own country. It's not, all right? But it was a capital nonetheless, right? It was a very wealthy city because it was a main port city, so a lot of wealth kind of came through there. So Ephesus was essentially like Austin 62 AD, all right? And so in a lot of ways then, what Paul is writing is uh, into a church that is probably in a situation a lot like ours. So as he talks about our identity, as he talks about what it means to be a church, it's actually very poignant for us and great timing is because, man, how do we live in light of this culture? How do we live in light of this society that we're in? What does it look like to be a church that is there amongst a community like that? So this book is loaded with relevant things for us. I hope we glean a lot from that. Now what Paul does to begin his letter here is actually extremely beautiful. For starters, Paul did not load his letter on the front end with a bunch of do's and don'ts, right? You tracking with that? Like a bunch of, here's what you should do, here's what you shouldn't do. He actually Layers. The first several section with all of these uh, deep biblical, beautiful, gospel-rich text in which he layers out all of the wonders, all of the majesty of the gospel over and over and over and over again, the good news of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and the implications that that has for us as believers of God. So then we too, rather than starting off with, here's how you should live for Christ or here's how you should live in light of Christ, it would be wise of us to also layer in our own souls and in our own hearts all of these gospel truths and to allow them to plant deep, that that would be the the way in which we actually live out in light of the gospel, to, to motivate us, to compel us to love our God, won't come from a list of do's and don'ts. It will come from our understanding of the gospel and our love for what Jesus has done for us. The gospel received and understood should be primary. That's what I'm trying to say here. It should be primary in our hearts, primary in our minds, primary in our actions. The gospel received and the gospel understood. Understood or dwelled on because remember, Paul is writing to believers. It says to the saints who are faithful in Christ, right? And so we actually see this, the hagios is that word, the Greek word for saints, the set apart ones, the, the holy ones. This is who Paul is writing to. He's writing to Timothy and to John and to Priscilla and Aquila, these people who are well familiar with the gospel, who would be able to preach it themselves and they do preach it themselves. He's writing to these men and women to encourage them in the truth that they already know. So if you already know the gospel, it's not enough just to know the gospel. You have to remind yourself of this truth over and over and over again. And that's how Paul actually starts our letter with all of these wonderful truths. And what he does, even to start it, honestly, is like almost a little bit absurd, okay? And I say that because I say Paul starts off with all these massive theological truths, what we're going to be covering today, and what he does is in verses 3 through 14, he writes all these implications of the gospel, and it's actually all just one really, really, really long sentence, okay? Like 11 verses, that's 212 words of all of these rich, deep theological gospel truths. Now, in the English, I know you're looking, you have periods and paragraphs, that's because they're trying to be nice to you, all right? It's hard to read one sentence that long and be like, what is he talking about, okay? But this is one really, really, really long sentence. And so uh, there's all these glories about uh, uh, who God is within this one really long sentence. And so firstly, Paul gave me a great uh, biblical implication to continually write long sentences in my emails with a lot of commas, so stop rebuking me. All right. Long sentences are from God. Okay. So because this is one long sentence, I want to read this section as a whole and really just get a full picture of what uh, Paul is talking about here and then kind of chop up what he's doing with this uh, in context. So Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 through 14, this one long sentence says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the beautiful word of the Lord. This is very different than our passage last week with Dagon and Ashdod and all the idols, right? Very, very different. And so where do we begin with this? There's so many truths in the midst of all this. Well, what we want to do today is we want to actually tackle the text. in the same way that Paul actually tackled it, what he's doing in this, if you kind of caught glimpse or notice, is that he's given this Trinitarian praise, okay? We as Christians believe in the Trinity. And if you're unfamiliar with that language, what that simply means is that we believe that there is one God, but that he exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And though in three persons, he is still only one essence, there is one true God. And so what Paul is doing here is he's layering on this Trinitarian praise and how each of the members of the Trinity has an implication for our salvation. And he's really showing the work that that person did in our salvation. And so in verses three through six, you get what the father did and verses seven through 10, what the son did. And in verses 11 through 14, you see what the Holy Spirit does in our salvation. And so we're going to tackle this text like that as well. And so if you go to the next slide, we're going to leave this slide up the whole time because we're focusing on on the Father's work right now, all right? And so here's what the Father does in our salvation, in our redemption in Christ. Firstly, if you notice in verse three, it says the Father has given us every spiritual blessing. To be honest, I don't really know what every spiritual blessing is, right? But the Greek word every in Greek means every or all. And so you have all spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing is actually yours in Christ. I'm not, uh, uh, this is a lot. And Paul actually says, hey, bless be the God and Father. So he's commanding us to bless God, to make much of God who has given us every blessing, right? And so we bless he who has blessed us in these abundant, these beautiful ways. What's even more is that these blessings, according to this text, have already been obtained by us who are believers who are in Christ. We may not be in actual possession of it yet, but the has there means that something has already happened, right? He has blessed you. This is a past tense. If you're a believer, you have already received the blessing of God. It has been delivered over to you. And so he may not have Amazon Prime delivery where it gets to you in two days, right? But it is on its way, right? It is being delivered and some of it you have received some of it you are still receiving some of it we will receive when we are with him for eternity but you already have in possession every spiritual blessing is fully yours if you are in Christ Jesus despite your works and despite your own perceived value we have these blessings this is good news amen Why is that, right? Because in uh, the Father and his abundant grace, the text says that he chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us, right? Now, that word freaks some people out, right? They're like, predestination? Oh, why did I come, right? And so I wanna tackle that, okay? Because that's a big, big word for a lot of us and it kind of confuses some of us. But I wanna take a couple of seconds to unpack this because being sincere, understanding the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination actually should motivate you to worship God in these profound and in these endless ways in a lot of way. What the scriptures make very, very plain is that every single Christian who has ever been saved has been elected by God, chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And so if you are a Christian, it is because God, out of no other reason than just his abundant grace and love and affection towards you, chose you before he even created the world, before the foundation of the world. He chose you to be a son, to be a daughter. He brought you into the kingdom. However, at the exact same time, you had the responsibility to respond to that call of God in your life. In fact, in verse 13, even in this heavy-laden gospel text, right? I just want to read verse 13 again. It says, "...in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him..." This is our responsibility in a lot of ways, right? In fact, election is mentioned 27 times throughout the whole entire New Testament. So it's not a doctrine that we can ignore or just say, oh, something else is happening here, okay? Yet within almost every one of these mentionings of election, we also see the responsibility of human will colliding at the exact same time. And so, uh, for example, if you uh, know the scriptures well, then think about something like Romans 9 and 11. These are both heavy, 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 heavy pre. Destination election text, that if you are saved, it is because God has chose you for salvation. But then right smack dab in the middle of that, in Romans chapter 10, it gives one of the most evangelistic appeals in all of the scripture. In fact, one of the verses, Romans 10, 14 says, uh, for how can they call on someone they have not heard of? And how can they hear unless someone preach? And, and how can they preach unless they are sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet that bring the good news. And it is all this gospel going implication that we have a responsibility to share the gospel. And that we have a responsibility to believe in the gospel. If we confess with our mouth Romans 10 9 and believe in our hearts, then we will be saved. And so, in the middle of this election text, you actually see man's responsibility, man's choice, man's obligation to respond to God collide at the exact same time. Man is responsible for responding to the call of God, and yet God chose us. In fact, the scriptures say that you were dead before you came to Christ. You were dead, right? You did not were not able to make a conscious decision because Consciousness is with aliveness, and if you are dead, you have no consciousness, right? So there is an inability for you to actually even make a decision. So the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit came into your heart, regenerated your heart, gave you the gift of faith, and then you were able to respond to God. So even our faith is a gift that has been given to us by God. You have been chosen by him. Yet at the exact same time, and God choosing you, he did not therefore reject others, but rather they reject the gospel because anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can and will be saved. And so the gospel is open for all of us. And so what you see is there's this decision we have to make. There's this election by God. There are these two worlds that are colliding. And what seems to be a conundrum to us is not a conundrum to God. He actually is totally uh, at ease for being able to reconcile both those truths at the same time. Charles Spurgeon, an old uh, preacher, was once asked, Hey, how do you kind of reconcile election and choice? And he said, I never reconcile two friends. Right? If they're friends, they don't need reconciliation. Only enemies need reconciliation. And these are friends. These are always in Scripture, one and the same. They are together. And so this is actually the mystery of God, which is the gospel of our salvation, that fallen humanity has been chosen by God, saved, but yet the gospel goes out to all. Right, the Invitation is to everyone. And so what's happening is that this mystery should actually spark worship in, it, in us, We see the other mysteries of the Bible. We're totally fine with those, and those actually spark worship in us, right? Like when I said the Trinity a second ago, nobody was like, the Trinity, what? Right? And yet that is a conundrum, is it not? One God that exists in three persons. I know I went to Detroit public schools, and I'm not good at math, but that's not good math, (laughs) right? We see all these other mysteries, like Jesus being 100% man and 100% God, yet only one being at the same time. We see all these other mysteries of the Bible, and we are totally fine with allowing them to exist at the same time. And so this is another mystery that we see that we can actually allow to exist at the exact same time. And so really what it is is, man, there is this beautiful truth that somehow in the mystery of God, he has chosen us, yet he has uh, laid the gospel out for all of us. And if you are saved, then it is not by your doing, it is the call of God. How do these two things fit together? It's the mystery, right? But Scripture always lays them out side by side. And so either the biblical writers were not very smart, straight up, right? Or they were hitting on something that's kind of mysterious and because the sentence structure and all the language Paul uses i'm assuming he's actually a pretty smart dude right and he would see his own contradiction in his own letters if he were recognizing this so we're just going to assume they're pretty smart so i'm going to go ahead and lean onto the latter this is a mystery of god God, in his mysterious will, has chosen you in him in this beautiful way. And so, even more, friends, I would say the fact that God chose you before the foundation of the world should actually be something that you not just rejoice in, but actually that you desire to be true as a believer. That This should be a doctrine you embrace, you desire to be true. Because think about it, friends. God chose you before you did anything. Anything, Right? God chose you before you even breathed on this earth or before you were conceived in your mother's womb or any of that, God chose you in and of himself. This is the mystery that it's talking about here because if it were dependent on what we did, then none of us would deserve God's love for none of us are holy or perfect and God is holy and perfect. And so if it depended on our works, then the burden would be on us to prove that we are worthy of God's love, but God loved you before you were able to prove it or unprove it, God just loved you and chose you before you did a single act. And so what actually happens is this doctrine allows us the freedom to say, man, God just loves me. I don't know why, I don't know how, but he loves me nonetheless, right? Rather than trying to work ourselves and prove ourselves and show that we're worthy and show that we're, we're valuable, show that we are, are honored by God. No, he chose you before you did a single act. This is a beautiful truth. And if we believe this truth, and it actually frees us to be able to operate in light of that right? In fact, even in verse 5, you see it says, in love he predestined you, right? This was the love of God. He loves you, friends. This is the, the affection of God for you in a lot of ways. This wasn't some cold, hard decision, right? He was like, oh, I guess Blair, yeah, that's fine. Tommy too, we got to save more people? Gosh, I guess Paul, like that's not what's happening here, right? Like it's in love that he predestined us. He looks at you with all this affection and with all this love and he, he loves you. So friends, do you feel loved by God? And if the answer to that is no, but you're a Christian, then this doctrine should give you freedom. You are loved by God. In love, he chose you to be brought into the family of God. And so if you are a believer, it is because God loves you. So if you wrestle with the love of God, you shouldn't, right? God loves you if you are in him. This is not of our own will or doing. It is the will of God that brought us in. Do you know what he paid for to get you into the family of God? There's all this intimacy there. He loves you intensely. and It's not because of any work that you did. He just loves the heck out of you because he's a good, good father. Just like a good, good father would love their son even before their son was born, would love their daughter even before they were born. This is how the love of the father is for you. And he invited you into the family. Listen, friends, we say this a lot, but God loves you. God loves you. Do you believe this? Do you preach this to yourselves? Is this a doctrine? Is this an idea that you command your soul to believe because your soul would tell you you are not worthy of the love of God? And in irony, it's a little bit correct. You are not worthy of the love of God, yet and still, God loves you before you proved any worth or value. He just loves you. Do you believe this? Do you allow this to wash over your soul? Do you live in light of the love of God? The groom of heaven has chosen you to be his bride. Do you feel that love? Do you feel that intimacy? Do you feel that affection, right? If you feel unworthy of God, he chose you if you're in him. You're not unworthy. In fact, if you're a a Christian, right, how can you have any more worth? In fact, if you're feeling unworthy of God and you kind of live in light of that unworthiness, it's actually a backwards attack on the will of God because you're saying his choice was wrong. He shouldn't have chose you, right? You're not worthy enough. You're not good enough. You're not. And it's actually an attack on his choice. And listen, friends, God does not make mistakes, Straight up. So if he chose you, it's because he knew what he was doing. He made the right decision. And so I don't care what your sin's telling you today. I don't care what the enemy's telling you today. I don't care what the world is telling you today. This text is if you are in him, you are loved by God. And if you are loved by God, you can live in light of that love. It can free you up in all these ways because it is not dependent on what you do, but it is dependent on who he is and his glorious grace has overwhelmed us that we would know him and enter into this family. No longer are you having to try to prove yourself valuable in all these different ways, but you can rest in the doctrine of this love. And if you don't know God the Father, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you're wrestling with the faith or you know that you're not a Christian, man, maybe even this is the love of God to somehow get you into this elementary school room on Mother's Day and hear about the love that God has for you. And maybe even now the Holy Spirit is sparking in your heart. May I love you. I want you to be on my team. And listen, friends. That would be him choosing you before the foundation of the world, orchestrating your life at the perfect time to hear the gospel of God and to respond to that call. All of us have an invitation to enter in to the family of God. If you're in, he loves you. Do you believe that? God loves you. God loves you. Do you preach this truth to yourself, right? He did not just save you though, the text says, for salvation only, right? The text actually says, in love he predestined you for adoption as sons, So he did not just save you just to kind of bring you into the family, but he brought you into the eternal family of God. God has been building for the past thousands and thousands of years this family of God filled with all these different brothers and sisters of all these different nationalities and ethnicities and of all these different tribes and cultures and all these different time periods. God is bringing together, orchestrating the family of God. He's brought you in to be a son of the most high God. This is beautiful, friends, because he did not just bring you on to team Jesus just to bring you on to team Jesus. He brought you in to be a son and a daughter of the king. He brought you in for sonship. This is where he adopted you into. In fact, Clinton Arnold, who's a theologian and a commentator, he says this, under Roman law, an adopted child acquired all of the legal rights of the natural born child and was released from the control of his natural father. The child also received the adopting parent's family name and a share in the status of the new family. Well, hello, (laughs) right? You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer in your old nature. Why? Because that man has died and you have resurrected with Christ our King. You are no longer a child of wrath, as Ephesians 2 would call it, or you are no longer a son of Satan, as Jesus would speak to the Pharisees. You have exited out of the death that was due to all of us and you have entered into the very family of God. Your last name is now God's last name. You are his. His. This is a beautiful truth because, once again, sonship is not based on our performance. It's based on the the, the choosing of the parents, right? Especially adoption. They choose to bring this child in. And if you have been brought into the family of God, it is because he was a loving father that looked upon you with love, chose to bring you in, and he loves you just like you are his own son. In fact, there's all these beautiful truths that we see in this idea, this doctrine of uh, uh, adoption. In fact, have you ever been to an adoption ceremony? Who in here has been to an adoption ceremony? Raise your hand. Okay, maybe that's like 10% of us. Uh, My brother and sister-in-law, they... Uh, adopted uh, two boys, and both times I went to the ceremony. And to be honest with you, when I walked into the first one, I wasn't ready for what was about to happen because we're going into just this uh, Texas, like, you know, it's just a state. It's just a state facility. It's not like Christian. It's not like any of these things. And so we walk in before a judge, and I just think there's going to be some legal stuff. They sign some document, and then we go home, and now the son is theirs, right? That's not what happened. Okay, we're sitting there before this judge, and he starts using all of this covenantal language and all of this beautiful language about what adoption is and what it means for uh, David and Karina, my, my, my brother and sister in law, what it means for them to be adopted parents and what it meant for their sons to be adopted into their family and all of this language. It felt like I was sitting through wedding vows more than just some sort of like legal procedure right? And as I was sitting there, I, like, wasn't ready for it, and your boy was a hot mess, right? Like, I just started, like, weeping, because I was thinking about all of this beautiful language, you know? And so, this week, as I was prepping the sermon looking at adoption, I was in a coffee shop, and I was like, man, I wonder what those vowels are. Like, I don't remember the exact language, so I went on YouTube and typed in, like, you know, adoption ceremonies and stuff like that, and your boy was a hot mess again, right? And I'm sitting there, and I realized at one point, I wasn't just, like, tearing up. Like, I was like... Like, snot crying, okay? Like, I was really crying, right? And I was like, man, this is so, so beautiful. And one of the things that caught me this time that didn't when I first saw the adoption process is how all of the kids that were being adopted, for the most part, none of them looked like the adopted parents at all, right? Like, they were totally different skin colors than the adopted parents usually, different cultures literally from overseas and and even if they were the same skin color and looked like they didn't look anything alike because that wasn't their uh, biological kid right it was their adopted kid and so you sit here through these vows and you begin to hear these things that the judge is saying like will you vow to love this kid like like you carried them for nine months like you were the one that birthed them will you bring them into the family give them your last name this is not just an 18 year process once they become adults they're still your your kids? Will you write them into your will? Will you, if you have biological children, love them the exact same? And there was all of this covenantal language and this, I do, I do, I do. And man, I was a hot mess because as you think about it, this is what the father has done for us. In fact, the doctrine of adoption should really blow our minds away because if you know the love that the father has for the son, which by the way is eternal, it existed from eternity past. God has always loved the son. This is the same type of love he gives you because he loves you like he loves you loves his own son. You are loved the way Jesus is loved by the Father. You are loved, friends. You have been adopted into the family of God. This is a wonderful truth. This is beautiful. Does this resonate in you? Is this moving in your soul, right? You are a child of God. You're a child of God. In fact, this text is really particular, right? It says that you are sons of God now, there are other texts that actually says sons and daughters, but the reason this one actually just says son is because uh, there's uh, this idea of inheritance that you receive. See, in that culture, the son received the inheritance, right? And so you now get brought in like you're Jesus himself receiving the very inheritance of God. This is what it means to be brought into the family of God. In fact, that word for adoption there, the, the Greek word is weathaseia, well, uh, we, we, we we uh, is what it is, weathaseia. And it's a combination of these two words. The one is to place, which is like adoption, to place in the family. But the second word, Paul actually like invents a new word here because Hesaea is the word that you use for an adult male, okay? And so what Paul is saying is that you have been adopted as adult children. Now, that's significant for two reasons. One, nobody gets adopted as adult kids, Right? Like that just doesn't happen. We have not seen that, right, in any culture ever. Why? Because at some point, once you kind of age out, there's this feeling that, hey, nobody wanted me, right? In fact, I know even last gathering, there was somebody who was kind of an orphan and said that phrase, and they're like, that's what I felt my whole life. Like nobody wanted me because I never got adopted. And this is actually how we would naturally feel. We are adult children with no real father to care for us, with no real mother to shepherd us, and then God adopted us as adult children. But the other reason this is significant is because the adult male was actually the one to receive the inheritance. And so if you were a child, you still had to kind of prove your childness into adulthood. But if you were an adult, you got adopted immediately into the inheritance of the father. As soon as you got brought into the family, the inheritance was already yours if you had lived with that family your whole 25, 35, 45 years of life. So you have been adopted by God into the inheritance of God. You are children of the most high king of the universe, friends. This is the love that God has for us. And love, he predestined you for adoption as sons, that you may receive an inheritance, that you may be filled with the riches of the glory of Christ, all because the father looked at you and said, mine, mine, mine. God looks at you and says, mine. He loves you. (laughs) He loves you, friends, so much. This was the will of God to bring you into the family of God. Gosh, saints of the well, you are loved by the divine. Do you feel it? Do you believe this? Do you preach this truth over yourselves? This was all because of the glorious grace of God, the text says. That word glory just means weighty. So it's this heavy grace of God. It's almost like it's too much grace. It's almost like grace is bearing down on our shoulders. The grace, the glorious grace of God is why he saved you. All because he has given you what you do not deserve. That's all grace is. You are getting what you do not deserve. It is weighty, it is almost too much. It's like you're getting too much, right? This is how much God wants to shower upon you. Christ then goes on in verse seven, and he buys our adoption. And so this was the work of Christ in the next section here of what was happening in all this. He pays for us to enter into the family of God by spilling his own blood for us. You even see the language shift some from what has happened in eternity past to what is currently happening in our lives. You presently have Christ's redemption. You presently have Christ's forgiveness. Why that language shift? Well, it's because they're wanting you to see the riches of Christ that is in you right now, the grace of God that he has towards you, right? In fact, that Greek word there for riches in verse seven, the riches of his grace, uh, was a word that was used of Solomon, who was the richest man that ever lived. Like, it wasn't just that he had like a little bit of grace, you know, kind of like when you season food, you put a little bit on, you put too much, it's overwhelming, right? That's not what it's saying here. It says that it was the riches of his grace, like the richest man that ever lived. It was that much grace. And then he goes on and he says, which he lavished upon us. That word lavish is actually a word that means to over overwhelm. Once again, it's like it's too much grace. There's, there's all this intimacy that's involved there. And so really what happens is, is the English word does a very, very, very poor job of translating that. Lavish is probably the best word that we can come up with, honestly. But that's not what the Greek word actually lays out. That Greek word lavish is this overwhelming. It's this too much grace of God. It's like there's almost a, a too much for us to even assume And so really the word actually carries with it in the Greek, this picture analogy that I want to show us today. This is us, the cup, right? And we are empty in and of ourselves. We have no grace given. We have no sonship. We have no inheritance. And what happens when God lavishes his grace upon us is he begins to pour this grace inside of us. And honestly, if it stopped right there, that would be far more than enough right? Because that would be the grace of God and not uh, condemning us away from his presence. That would be the grace of God that even brings us salvation. This would be enough by itself. But that's not where he stops. It says the riches of his grace. He lavishes upon us. And so that's him pouring grace after grace after grace after grace after grace upon us. And he fills us up and he fills our cup to the full. But that's not actually what the word means either. The word lavish means he pours too much for you to be able to even receive it. And so the grace of God starts pouring and it pours more and more and more and it starts overflowing in all of this grace of God. And all of a sudden you become like this cup that is filled with all of the graces of God that you aren't even able to hold it all in. It spills out of you. There's too much grace. We can't even understand how much grace has been given to us by the Father. This is what that word lavish means. God has lavished you with things that you do not deserve even more than what you are able to assume this is how much god loves you this is how much he pours his grace out upon you in fact probably a better analogy would be to take this cup and to put it in the middle of the ocean with all the water that is around it and the cup begins to be so small in the midst of all that water you almost forget the cup even exists in the first place that's how you are you are drowning in the ocean of his grace friends over and over and over again, the grace of God pouring out in our lives, right? This is this beautiful truth. What happens in the grace of God lavishing upon us is it's not like this water bottle where God becomes empty, right? Except I kept a little bit in case my throat gets dry and I need to drink some, all right? That's not what this is like, right? Like it actually is the heavens opening up and grace just keeps pouring in and keeps pouring in and keeps pouring in, and it never stops pouring, and that will be your eternity, (laughs) Your eternity will be receiving the grace of God forever, over and over and over and over again. This is the love that you have in Christ Jesus. This is beautiful truth, friends. Do you live in this? Do you believe that God loves you? This is your identity. You are children of grace. You have all of this beautiful, 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 beautiful truths wrapped up in Christ. The other beautiful thing is that uh, uh, the, the will of God here, says so this was the, the will of God, making it, so it's the mystery of his will, okay? There's two Greek words for will, once again. One of them is to make up in your mind, logically, okay? So like you logically think about it and then you kind of make a conscious decision in light of that. But that's not what this word here is. There's a second Greek word that is you become so overwhelmed with emotion that you then make a decision based off of that. So for most of us, when we get overwhelmed, when we make a heart emotional decision, it's usually really dumb, right? Like we kind of like regret doing it, like, oh, why'd I do that, right? that's not what it is for the father the father is so overwhelmed with emotion for you the text says that out of this overwhelming emotion this is why he has chosen you to be adopted as son so god is not cold and hard as we said earlier but it's all of this love that is swelling up inside of him for you god loves you friends god loves you you are loved by the king of eternity this is a beautiful truth, right? And so we see all these beautiful ones. You are overwhelmed. In other words, Jesus, the, the perfect one, the one who is holy and blameless, who is beautiful and perfect, has this same overwhelming love for you like the Father has. So he willingly spilled his blood. He willingly went to the cross. He willingly drank the wrath of God. He willingly did what it took to, to brought you, bring you into the family. So listen, there's all this theology happening here, right? Like we talked about, The doctrine of election, predestination, adoption, the trinity, the gospel. There's all this theology, but Paul is preaching this theology in a non-dry way. When theology is not just intellectually assented to, but it is believed in the heart, it should swell us up to be able to worship right? In fact, C.S. Lewis will go on to say that some of us, we probably lack zeal in our worship because we have not been dwelling on the deep truths of God enough. In fact, he says this. He says, I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in a teeth and a pencil in their hand. So C.S. Lewis wasn't Baptist, all right? Right, but that's you, right, sitting down with maybe you're a latte in your hand and a highlighter in your other one or whatever it is, right, where you're sitting down thinking about these deep truths of God. This should spark worship because it's not just this intellectual knowledge, but God loves you so much your brain can't even fully comprehend it, and that should swell up in emotions and this praise to God. That's what Paul's doing right here. He's worshiping God throughout all these deep, deep, deep truths. And so we see the Father has chosen us, the Son has bought us, and in the Holy Spirit, he seals us. That's the Holy Spirit's work. He is our guarantee, as the ESV puts it in verse 14. Like, you know when you buy a house and you put a down payment on it? That's the Greek word here is down payment, okay? And so, like, you think about it. In a down payment, you know, you kind of think you're rich before you buy the house. Then you put a down payment down you're only eating ramen for the next four months because you realize you ain't got no more money left, right? Like, that's what it is. It's a down payment to us, okay? The reason this is important is that it's not just earnest money. Earnest money you lose, right? But a down payment is your first purchase toward the house. So if you put down 20% on a house, you own 20% of the home. You put down 5%, you own 5%. If you're broke like us, you just pray somebody accepts your offer, you put down no percent, you own no percent, right? But at some point, the Holy Spirit becomes our down payment in that. And he has already sealed us. He has already begun that work of redemption. He is the first piece of buying us back to God. He has sealed you. It is proof that God has bought you to himself, Holy Spirit is our down payment, right, toward the final purchase. He is our promise, the the guarantee of what God has started, that he will bring it to finish at final redemption. And within this, what you actually see is that God is not a liar. Straight up, God is not a liar, right? God promised the Holy Spirit, and then he gave the Holy Spirit. So when God promises you that you will have every spiritual blessing in Christ, God does not lie. Every spiritual blessing will be yours, When God promises you are holy and blameless are already in the past you are holy and blameless he looks at you and sees you like he sees his own son God is not a liar he would not be trying to trick you or deceive you he is not this weird right like conniving dad no he is a good father right? He comes through on his promises, every single one of them. And in fact, there at the end of the verse, in verse 14, you see our joining to God is to the praise of his glory, right? To the praise of his His glorious grace that we've already read about. And so if you are in him, it was his glory to bring you in, friends. This is what he wanted to do all along. So it's like, ah, I guess I need to. No, it was glorious to him. And God is for his glory, which we always say is your good right? God's glory is your good. Gosh, family, do you feel this? Do you feel this true? Do you allow it to sink in? In fact, I want to go to the next slide real quick. This is what this text lays out for all the promises that we have of Christ. Because of Christ, you get every spiritual blessing, you get holiness, blamelessness, adoption as sons, glorious grace, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, knowledge of his mysterious will and inheritance in the holy spirit. This is all from one sentence. Hello. Right? God is pouring out all of these abundant blessings to us, friends. This is one sentence of what you get in Christ. And this is only the the, the tip of the iceberg, right? The grace of God, it overwhelms us in all of these beautiful ways. Further, did you notice the phrase that continually was repeated throughout this text over and over again? There's actually a couple of them. And so in CGs this week, I'll let you kind of have fun and uh, try to find the other ones. There's a couple of them that repeat like three or four times, but there's one of them that's repeated in this text over and over over and over again. If you go to the next slide, if you look at this one, this is just the text as a whole, okay? I know you can't really see it, that's fine, all right? This is the whole section that we just read. Now if you go to the next slide, this is what is happening over and over and over again in Christ, in him, in the beloved, in him, in Christ, in him, over and over and over and over again. All of these truths are ours. Why? Because of us being in Christ. In fact, 11 times in just these few verses, it says in Christ over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? And so we get all of these blessings. Go to the next slide. We get all of these things because we are in Christ. If you are in Christ, this is all yours, right? Right? And do you, do you taste it? Do you see it? Do you feel it? The gospel, friends, this is why we can know this to be true. How do we know this? How can we believe this truth? Well, if you are in him, he already proved it to you on the cross, right? See, Jesus, he received every spiritual curse that you may receive every spiritual blessing. You know, cursed it as anyone who hangs on a tree, Galatians says right? Christ actually became sin that you may be holy and blameless. The holy one became sin that you who are sinners may now be holy in him, right? The father turned the face away from the son. Why? So that he may turn his face towards you. He should have turned his face away from you for eternity, but rather he turned the face away from the son that you may be adopted in. You have received glorious grace because Jesus Christ drank the wrath of God and on and on and on and on you see the gospel scream. Out at us that all of these are yours because if you are in Christ, He has paid the opposite for you, He has brought you in to be adopted into the family of God. It is because of Jesus we get these truths, and this is why we worship Him. And this is why Paul exalts Jesus. This is why He starts the letter like this. Even think about our church, right? Exalt disciples, sin. That's why we start with exalt, making much of Jesus. As we make much of Jesus, as these truths of the gospel resonate in our heart, it moves us to action, friends. And then, verse 13, as we hear these truths and we respond to them, then we can live in light of these truths and live our lives out with the beauty of this, knowing that one day we will be sons of the most high God forever, that we will be princes and princesses in the kingdom of God ready to rule and reign with him, that we will get a new name as we have already been given a a new last name, to use that analogy, brought into the family of God all because of Jesus Christ, the beloved one. Friends, this is us, this is ours. This is all that we have in Christ. And so, what do we do with all this? What do we do with this truth? Well, it's really, really simple, friends. There are just two simple truths I would say one of them is we worship. <laughs> right? Like that's what Paul was doing here. He was writing this poetic praise. He was overwhelmed almost with these emotional truths, and it led him into this long run-on sentence of praise, right? And so this is what God is calling us to do, that these truths would move us into praise to his glorious grace, right? Why? Because the enemy would want these truths to miss in our heart. The enemy will want us to not be able to see these truths, right? But we can respond to the praises of God even right now. We can respond that we are an adopted child of God, that you are holy and blameless. Do you believe this? Do you live in light of this, friends? This is what we get in Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you now. The second application for us is that if you're doubting your identity, you shouldn't. If you're doubting whether or not you are worthy, you shouldn't. If you are doubting whether or not you are loved, you shouldn't, friends. Not because of any of your worth or any of your value, but because God in his abundant mercy chose you before the foundation of the world. Friends, you have been given a new identity. Not a worker, not a slave, not a son of the devil, not a sinner, a saint. A set-apart one, a holy and blameless one. This is who you are in Christ. And so if you are doubting this identity, friends, the gospel tells you that you are made pure, beautiful before our Savior. Can we live in light of this? When Satan lies to you because he's a liar and he will lie to you, then you can respond with child of God. When Satan lies to you and says you're a sinner, you can say blameless. Right, the enemy is going to try to lie to you today, friends. When you're driving home on 35, somebody cuts you off, and you cuss somebody out, and you no longer feel blameless. Right? No, no, no. You're already blameless in Christ, friends. This is the truth of the gospel. He is making you new, even right now. And one day, this will be ours for eternity. You can live in the reality of this today. Today, you have a new identity, friends. Let us walk in light of that, and let us worship our King. I pray that we will be a church that believes this identity. That exalts our King Jesus, and that falls head over heels in love for the God who fell head over heels in love for you. I love you guys let's pray, Jesus, we thank you, I thank you, God, for these truths. We are yours, we are yours, God, we are yours, thank you. God, I pray that you would help us to believe these truths God. I feel it even right now. I just want to go into the next thing. I want to forget that these truths are even real. I want them not to sink into our heart. God, would you peel open the hard ground of our heart and implant these truths and plant these seeds into the soil of our hearts that they may spring up and bear fruit in our lives. God, would you help us to believe these truths, Jesus? Let's believe, God, the overwhelming, the lavishing grace that you have upon us that it pours and pours and pours and it overwhelms us and it spills out of us. And there's so much grace, God, would you remind us of that? Would you help us to live in light of that? God, I pray for those who may not know you. God, I pray that even right now you would be speaking to them, you're mine. I want you, I love you. Would you come in with me? And I pray, God, that those who do not know you, that they would right now, that they would hear the word that was preached, that they would hear the gospel of their salvation, they would see what is theirs in Christ, that they would respond with belief. You say, if we believe in you, we are saved. God, would you help all of us to believe, whether we're believing right now for the first time or this is our thousandth time believing, would you help us to believe again? We love you, Jesus. I thank you for who you are. I pray that this gospel truth would carry us throughout the rest of our series, that we will believe we are children of God. Praise in your beautiful name. Amen.